Luke chapter 2. And uh, we're going to read uh, the Christmas story from Luke, Luke's account of it anyway, uh, from uh, verse 1 down through about verse number 18. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter number 2. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. (coughs) And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace and goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told by them by the shepherd, told them by the shepherds. Father, we pray that you'll bless uh, the message, and may you help us to uh, understand the perfectness of your plan. And uh, Lord, as we rejoice in what you've done on Calvary in your plan of salvation to us, the redemptive plan for man, may we uh, be not only encouraged by it and rejoice in what you've done for us. But, Father, may we be renewed in our zeal, in our desire, in our effort to be diligent to share this wonderful news to those that need to hear yet, those that are without you, that need to know that you love them, that you came to this earth to die in their place as a payment for their sin so that they would not have to pay for it and that they could have a home in heaven with you for all of eternity. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to rightly understand your word and use this morning to help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I, uh, for many, many years uh, growing up, uh, would love Christmas time. It's one of my favorite times of the year. In fact, uh, you know, you see these stores getting earlier and earlier. This year, before October, there were people putting Christmas trees up in their stores and trying to sell them back in August. And I'm okay with that. I love Christmas. And I don't like the commercialization of it, but I love the Christmas season. And uh, I love, uh, I remember as a kid growing up, we lived in Florida, and we don't have seasons down there. We have uh, warm summer and cool summer, and those are the only two that really we have uh, in Florida. But uh, I remember waiting till the uh, the temperatures began to get a little crisp in the morning, and, and boy, I just would get so excited. And uh, Thanksgiving and all the smells and, and uh, the, the mom baking and, and the food and the relatives coming in from out of town. And uh, the one, of the, one of the highlights of my year every year was my mom and dad had a, a small little manger scene. It was just a little wooden box looking thing. They got it uh, one of the, the dime stores. They had dime stores still back then. And uh, they had bought this thing back when they first got married. And my sister and I used to always fight because they had these little figures that, that were in there that used to be glued inside, but over the years they had broken loose. And so we always would fight over who got to set up the manger scene. And uh, we would uh, get the thing out of the box, and we'd put Mary and Joseph and the baby there in this stable. And 
Then there were some cows and some, I think, a donkey and a couple sheep and some shepherds. And uh, we would put that all together. And for years, I thought, boy, that's, that's the way it happened. Uh, there was a stable and there was a, a barn and it had a bunch of animals in it and, and that this was the case. And uh, I had a fellow a number of years ago come to me and hand me a piece of paper uh, and said, Pastor, have you ever heard uh, about the Tower of the Flock? And I said, no, I haven't. And uh, as uh, often is the case, when somebody hands you a printout uh, that they've printed off of their computer, it's three or four pages, and they want you to look at something that you've never heard of from Scripture, you just kind of think, well, I'll get to it when I can, and you, you toss it down. I, I threw it on my desk, and uh, it got buried under a few things for a week or two. And uh, I was going through my office a, a few weeks later, and I came across this paper, and I, I had promised the fellow that I would read it. And I did with some skepticism, and I thought, well, you know, here's one of those off-the-wall things that somebody's trying to conceive and come up with. And I began reading about what the Bible refers to as the Tower of the Flock. As I began to read it, I began to realize the Bible taught it very, very clearly, in fact. And uh, I was appalled at how little I had known about the true Christmas story, how things had come to pass. And then as I began to see the verses of Scripture and look up the passages that dealt with it, uh, the beauty of God's perfect plan to bring His Son into this world just was, was opened to me, and I, I began to see things that just were amazing. And I sat there with tears streaming down my face, rejoicing at what God had done. And uh, I began to study a lot further, because it was just a small little piece of paper that kind of introduced me to the subject. I studied it rather extensively for a couple of years and taught it each year, and each year would have more to add to it and things that I had come across. I didn't think much of it when I moved up here to Missouri, and uh, we went through a couple, two or three Christmases up here, and uh, I was in another church at the time, and uh, then we came over here to Keitha Heights, and Brother Randy Casey had a, a pastor's meeting uh, where he invited a bunch of local pastors to come and have lunch here in our fellowship hall, and, and uh, Brother Charles Hiltabittle was uh, visiting that week at Second Baptist and doing a... Uh, 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 a conference over there, and he had invited him to come over. And while we were eating lunch, uh, Brother Randy said, Brother Hiltabittle, would you, it was close to Christmas time, he said, would you say a few words maybe about the Tower of the Flock? And boy, my ears perked up. I didn't know anybody else knew about the Tower of the Flock. It was one of these things that a lot of people didn't know about. And Brother Hiltabittle began to talk about it, and he even brought up things that I didn't even know about yet, where he had gone over to Israel and had gone to the uh, the archaeological uh, finds of the old gates of old Jerusalem or old uh, old Bethlehem, and uh, had uh, seen some of the things that I'm going to share with you today. Uh, it's a, an amazing thing, and I don't want to I don't want to tell you to throw your manger scenes away. Uh, I'm not going to tell you to do that, but I will say this: they don't follow the biblical account. Many of them don't don't, and uh, and I want to try to help us this morning. Uh, the Bible tells us here in Luke that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem. And uh, it's very important for us to know which one that they went to. Uh, there are at least five different names of cities called Bethlehem over in the Middle East. Two of them very, very prominent. Uh, one of them is up near Nazareth uh, by the Sea of Galilee. And that is not the one that, that Luke 2 is referring to. Uh, the other one is uh, just outside of Jerusalem. About, In fact, the old gates are about four miles uh, from the temple. Uh, very important. They, they have a, 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 a building uh, the, uh, called the... the um, it's, a, it's a church-type setting, I think, done by the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it's a basilica, I think they call it, uh, but it's uh, of the Nativity. Uh, over there, and it's where they think that the uh, the birth of Christ took place, or a lot of people do. And every year, people make uh, journeys over there to visit that. They'll have probably half a million people during the Christmas season visit this uh, this church of the Nativity uh, that's over there. Uh, that place cannot and, and is not the place where the Lord Jesus Christ was born. In fact, uh, Constantine's mother, back when he was in power, was the one who went and found a site and said, "This is where I want." 
to build a, a, a church and call it the place of the nativity where Christ was born. And uh, she had done that by having some visions and some, some off-the-wall things uh, that she thought about. But one of the reasons why we know it could not have been there is it was uh, further distance than was legally allowable for the sacrificial lambs that were to be sacrificed in Jerusalem. Uh, it was further away than they could legally allow um, uh, these things to be. And so uh, the nativity was certainly, I don't believe, there. And uh, so that brings us back to the old gates of, of Bethlehem and the one that is located there outside of the city of Jerusalem uh, by just a few miles. I'm going to have you hold your place here in Luke 2. We're going to come back to it in just a few moments. And I want us to look at several scriptures. And we're going to go back to uh, Genesis chapter 23. And we're going to show how we know from scripture uh, which Bethlehem it is speaking of here. Because the Bible does tell us very, very clearly which one it is. And so we're going to take a moment to look at this. We're going to find uh, where it, it all began, which was back in Genesis chapter number 23. Genesis chapter 23. And uh, this is the story of Abraham and Sarah, and Sarah passes away. She dies, and of course Abraham is still at this point a sojourner, and, uh, and God uh, had not given him a place of inheritance and so he did not have a place to bury Sarah. And uh, the Bible says in verse number 3 of Genesis chapter 23, And Abraham stood up from before his dead and spake unto the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the children of Heth answered Abraham, saying unto him, Hear us, my Lord, thou art a mighty prince among us. In the choice of our sepulchres, bury thy dead. None of us shall withhold from thee his sepulchre, but that thou mayest bury thy dead. And Abraham stood up and bowed himself to the people of the land, even to the children of Heth. And he communed with them, saying, If it be your mind that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat me, uh, entreat for me to Ephron, and that's an important name, Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he hath, which is at the end, in the end of his field. For as much money as is worth, he shall give it me for a possession of a burying place amongst you. And Ephron dwelt among the children of Heth, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the audience of the children of Heth, even of all that went in at the gate of his city, saying, Nay, my lord, hear me, the field give I thee, in the presence of the sons of my people, give I it thee, bury thy dead. And Abraham bowed uh, down himself before the people of the land. And he spake unto Ephron in the audience of the people of the land, <coughs> saying, Behold, but if thou wilt give it, I pray thee, hear me, I will give thee money for the field. Take it of me, and I will bury my dead there. And Ephron answered Abraham, saying unto him, My Lord, hearken unto me. The land is worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that betwixt me and thee? Bury therefore thy dead. And Abraham hearkened unto Ephron. And Abraham weighed to Ephron the silver, which he had named in the audience of the sons of Heth, four hundred shekels of silver, current money, with the merchant and the field of Ephron, which was in Machpelah, which was before Mamre, and the field and the cave, which was therein, and all the trees that were in the field, and were in all the borders round about, were made sure unto Abraham for a possession in the presence of the children of Heth, before all that went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah before, the Mam before Mamre, the same as Hebron in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is therein were made sure unto Abraham for a possession of a burying place by the sons of Heth. Now, we did not take time to read in chapter number 22, but uh, Abraham is in the region of Moriah. Uh, Mount Moriah, and this is, of course, right outside of, uh, or right there in Jerusalem. Uh, Mount Moriah is an interesting mountain. Uh, Noah, if you'll remember, the ship, uh, the, the ark came to rest, the Bible says, in the mountains, plural, of Moriah. We don't know which, uh, which ones uh, that they landed on specifically, but in that mountain range. Uh, of course, we know the ark to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and the redemption of man. And uh, then we find in, in Genesis chapter 22, just the chapter before what we just read, 
God tells Abraham to take his son, his only son Isaac, uh, up to Mount Moriah and uh, to uh, sacrifice him there. And he goes up on the mountain and builds an altar. And we know the story how that uh, Isaac asks his father, you know, I see the wood, I see the fire, where is, where is the, uh, uh, the sacrifice? And I love what Abraham said. He said, God will provide himself a lamb. He'll provide himself. And uh, this took place on Mount Moriah. Jump ahead a, a few generations, several generations after that. Not only has the ark taken place there, and, and uh, Abraham and Isaac has, uh, has had their moment of God providing himself a, man, uh, a, a lamb that, by the way, saved Isaac. Um, we find that David, who had sinned and was under the judgment of God, uh, walks up on Mount Moriah. And uh, God is destroying the nation of Israel. And He tells the angel of the Lord with His sword outstretched over Jerusalem and David standing there on the hillside of Moriah. And he sees that this angel of the Lord is ready to slay. And he comes to a man by the name of Ornan who has a threshing floor. It's interesting. Threshing floor there in Moriah. And uh, he uh, asks him to give him the threshing floor. And he buys the threshing floor makes an altar to the Lord. And God gives forgiveness there. And the sacrifice once again is made. Very significant mountain. In fact, uh, David, after he had purchased the, the threshing floor of Ornan, used that property to build uh, Solomon's temple on. That site was used. Uh, and that temple was built on that site. Uh, very, very important structure in this Mount Moriah, of course, in, in Jerusalem itself. And uh, from Mount Moriah comes down, there's three smaller valleys that, that come down into one large valley uh, there by Old Bethlehem, which is right outside the gates of Jerusalem. Bethlehem was a very important city at this time because they uh, were useful in providing the means for uh, the, the practices that were taking place in the temple. They would uh, produce the incense and the oils and um, the, the different things that needed to take place in the temple worship. They would also be responsible for uh, the sacrificial lambs that were there. So we find that Abraham buys this piece of property in, in Ephron. He's, he's there at the, just outside of Mount Moriah. So we know that this field of Ephron is located uh, just, just in that little area uh, there by Moriah where the temple is built, which later becomes the city of Jerusalem and the temple there. And then, of course, just right outside of that uh, is this place that Abraham has purchased for a burying place. So, again, we, we know from Scripture uh, the region of the area of the country where this was located. Now, this place that Abraham bought was used by his family. Uh, turn over to Genesis chapter 35. <clears throat> Genesis chapter number 35, and we find the story now of uh, Jacob and Rachel. Uh, Jacob was the grandson of uh, Abraham. And uh, Genesis chapter 35, let's look in verse number 15. Jacob has deceived his father and tricked his brother and is fleeing for his life. He comes to a place that he meets with God, and God gives him a vision as he sleeps of the stairway that leads up to heaven and angels ascending and descending. And uh, in verse number 15, after he woke up uh, from that place, the Bible says, And Jacob called the name of the place where God spake with him, Bethel. And they journeyed from Bethel, and there was but a little way to come to Ephrath. And Rachel travailed, and she had hard labor. Labor. And it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said unto her, Fear not, thou shalt have this son also. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin. Rachel died and was buried in the way to Ephrath, notice this phrase, which is Bethlehem. So again, the valley of Ephron that used to belong to uh, this man Ephron, that uh, Abraham bought it from, uh, has become the burial place. Jacob is near this place uh, when his wife Rachel dies, and he uh, buries her there. 
in this place of Ephron, or Ephron, uh, the valley of uh, Ephron, or the way to Ephron, uh, the Bible says, which is uh, Bethlehem. So, very important that we understand, again, the region of the country is all the same here and points to one location. Now, turn. Uh, we're going to read down just a few more verses. Uh, in verse number 20 uh, of the same chapter, And Jacob set up a pillar, a set of pillar upon her grave, that is the pillar of Rachel's grave unto this day. And Israel journeyed and spread his tent beyond the tower of Edar. So, again, still in this same region, uh, he spreads his tent behind, uh, beyond what's called the tower of Edar. Uh, now, the tower of Edar, uh, sometime between the time of Abraham and the time of Jacob, um, the, the folks that were in the area... Uh, had built a tower, or it could have been there even prior to Abraham buying the property, but it was a tower that was built for the purpose of overlooking the valley and providing defense. Again, these were agricultural people. They were farming. They had herds and sheep, and it was there for a lookout tower and as a defense uh, either against bandits or against animals and things that were there. And this is the first reference that we have of this tower of Edar, uh, being in uh, this area of uh, Bethlehem and the field that uh, Ephron had sold to Abraham. Uh, the Hebrew name for it is Migdal Eater. Uh, just simply means the Tower of Eater, and uh, just the Hebrew word for it. And uh, so we find that there is uh, uh, this tower. Now, this tower... Uh, is the ruins of it are still there to this day. You can go to the old Bethlehem uh, site. It's very difficult to get to. There are three different people groups over there that claim the land, and they don't do a lot of archaeological digs because uh, they are struggling with who owns that land. But you can still visit it with special permission. You can actually see these things. I have uh, a friend of mine and then another fellow that I know about that have personally been there and have seen it with their own eyes, the ruins of this particular tower. It is in existence there still today. And you can still see it just, just right, literally a few hundred feet outside of the gates, uh, the old gates of where Bethlehem uh, was located. And it overlooked uh, a valley, a, a field that goes down into this main, where the three smaller valleys come down from Jerusalem uh, and uh, Mount Moriah. They come down into this larger valley and a, a large field there, and to this day uh, it is referred to, and the Jews refer to it, as the shepherd's field. And the reason it's referred to it as the shepherd's field is because that is where uh, the Levitical priests would keep the sacrificial lambs. They would watch over them in that particular field at the foot, or leading down from, this Tower of Eder. Uh, we've got a few more generations that take place. Uh, after uh, uh, Jacob. And I want you now, if you will, to turn with me to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth. And uh, we're going to look in verse num- or chapter number 1, Ruth chapter number 1. And we're going to keep, keep the idea of the tower in your mind for a moment. We're going to come back to that here in just a minute. <clears throat> Ruth chapter number 1. If you remember the story of Ruth, uh, there was a lady named Naomi and uh, her uh, husband and two sons, uh, Elimelech, and then she had two boys, uh, Malan and Chilion, who married. Uh, they went down to Moab because of some uh, problems and some famine. And uh, they married some Moabite women, uh, the boys did. Uh, in the course of time, the husband and both sons passed away. So now it's just Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws. Naomi decides, I'm going to go back to my hometown. And uh, one of the daughter-in-laws hugs her neck, kisses her goodbye. But Ruth says, no, I'm going to go where you're going. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is going to be my God. And she follows Naomi. That, that's the story that we're looking at here. Chapter 1, let's look in verse number 21. This is Naomi speaking, and she says, I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call ye me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me? So Naomi returned 
and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, which returned out of the country of Moab, and they came to, look at this word, they came to where? Bethlehem, in the beginning of the barley harvest. So, her hometown, she was a descendant from uh, Jacob, and her hometown was this place of Bethlehem. And uh, the story continues... Uh, as you go down, let's look in chapter number 3. We're not going to take time to read all of this, but I'll give you the highlights and the points of it. Uh, Ruth is trying to take care of her uh, mother-in-law as best she can, and she uh, comes to a, uh, a field where Boaz, uh, who is a descendant of Abraham and Jacob, uh, who lives there in Bethlehem, he has some fields and he has a threshing floor there and he uh, harvested his crops and Ruth would go and they would, she would glean in his fields. Back then the Old Testament practice was for the poor. If, if the workers dropped anything from the harvest, they were to leave it there and they were not to harvest the corners uh, of the crops. And that would allow the poor to come in after the harvest and to glean from the field and that was how the poor was taken care of in many cases. And Ruth was going and gleaning, and she uh, was noticed by Boaz one day out in the field. And Boaz kind of took a liking to her and was impressed with what she was doing to take care of her mother-in-law. And he being a fellow kinsman of uh, Naomi and her husband, uh, he told his workers, leave a little extra on the ground because I want Ruth to have plenty. And kind of took a, a liking to her. Uh, Ruth, uh, or Naomi, tells Ruth that's a good sign. And in chapter number 3, uh, she tells her, I-, I want you to go and lay at Boaz's feet and see if he will do uh, what was right at the time uh, to be a kinsman redeemer. And if your brother uh, had passed away and his wife had not yet born children, then the brothers, through oldest through the youngest, would have the right or the opportunity to marry the brother's wife and to raise up a seed for their brother. And uh, this was the practice in that time. And uh, Boaz was part of that. So in chapter 3, let's look in verse number 1. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? And now is not Boaz of our kindred, who, uh, with whose maids thou wast? Behold, he winnoweth barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash there, thyself therefore, and anoint thee, and put thy raiment upon thee, and let thee go down uh, to the floor, but make not thyself known unto the man until he shall have done eating and drinking." And it shall be when he lieth down that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet, and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me I will do. Notice verse number 6. And she went down unto the floor, and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. So here we have Boaz uh, at the threshing floor, the Bible tells us that Naomi knew that Boaz was, at least during the time of harvest, uh, was staying there at the threshing floor. He was sleeping there. And uh, the Bible tells us in verse number 6, uh, she went down under the floor. This is interesting because they have found what uh, they believe to be Boaz's threshing floor in Old Bethlehem. It's a, a, a depression in the rock. It's been carved out about 10 feet deep. And it's a circle about 150 feet long, about 85 feet wide, with 10-foot walls all the way around. And on the north end of it, there's a set of steps that are carved out to go down into the threshing floor. And when it talks about Ruth going down to the floor, uh, speaking of her going down those steps and down to this lower level, meaning that uh, Boaz was sleeping there in this threshing floor. Uh, The archaeological site uh, has... Um, these cavities that are carved into the walls, these 10-foot high walls surrounding this 150-foot by uh, 85-foot wide circle uh, that are about 8 or 10-foot cubed, uh, not quite as high as that, but as far as uh, surface area squared, uh, about 10 foot, 8 to 10-foot in and about 8 to 10-foot wide and head high. And they're all around, and then where there was room, they would oftentimes... Uh, and in this particular site, they dug uh, hallways even back into the face of the wall with rooms off to the sides from the hallways. So there were numbers of these little rooms in the walls. They were used initially to put 
uh, the harvest in there when they were either done threshing or prior to threshing. They would put them in and out of these, ca- uh, these cavities. But it's interesting that during the first century, there are some writings that were done in, in Syriac, in, in the Arabic language, uh, which was also one of the careful languages that our Scriptures came from, the Syriac version of Scripture uh, that was written in Arabic. There was a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of uh, uh, emphasis placed on that particular Scripture. And uh, there is uh, some writings of, from the first century in that language uh, that talked about the ends that were built. Uh, there were ends that were put along major roadways uh, by the Persians, uh, I'm sorry, by the uh, Syrians years, years earlier, uh, and they were built about every six to eight miles along roadways, and uh, except where there was a city. And where there was a city, they did not build an inn. They would look for a threshing floor. And there, is, there are some writings from the first century in the Arabic language that talk about, uh, at Bethlehem, the inn being the threshing floor. This is where the travelers would come in and they would lodge there. They would pay to lodge in these little cavities. And uh, that's where they would lodge. So there's a uh, very strong indication historically that the inn that was referred to here, and it would have been referred to as the inn, uh, and it would have been the only one in Bethlehem. You'll notice in the account of Luke 2 that it doesn't say an inn. It says the inn. There's only one. Uh, it's the only place to go. And um, so... Uh, we find that this threshing floor is a very significant part uh, of this story. Because I think in some of our minds we get this idea that there was some little uh, wooden shack somewhere that had a few rooms in it, and there was probably an innkeeper and his wife, and, and here Mary and Joseph show up in the middle of the night, and they get them out of bed, and we've all heard those stories. Uh, and they knocked on the door, and they besought the innkeeper numerous times and pleaded with them and begged with them to try to get a place to stay. And that the innkeeper finally says, look, we're full, we're full, but i got a stable out back. Well, the Bible doesn't talk anything about a stable. You won't find it in Scripture. You will find the mention of a manger, but you will not find the mention of a stable, nor will you find mention of any other animals, uh, because it was not that way in Scripture. This threshing floor, very, very important that we understand uh, that even the, the locals that live over there have uh, historically always held to the fact that that threshing floor was the end that was used uh, in Luke chapter number 2 uh, for the purpose of the family gathering. And again, these people are coming back to the city because they're of the house and lineage of David. So this is family property. Uh, again, the property that I believe... Uh, part of the property that, that Abraham bought uh, that was the part of the borders of the Valley of Ephrath and the city that the city was built on. So uh, there's, there's, there's this threshing floor here. Now turn to First Chronicles chapter 11. First Chronicles chapter 11. And I know this is a lot of, a lot of thinking and Bible study type stuff, but hang with me because it gets pretty exciting here in a few moments. First Chronicles chapter 11. And uh, let's look in verse number 1, 1 Chronicles chapter 11 and verse number 1. <clears throat> then all Israel gathered themselves to David. Now, let me give you a little bit of, of genealogy here. So you have Ruth and Boaz. They end up getting married. They have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse is David's father. So Boaz would have been David's great grandfather. And that's the lineage how we get here. So this is now fourth generation after the story of Ruth and Boaz. Then all Israel gathered themselves to David unto Hebron, saying, Behold, we are bone and uh, we are thy bone and thy flesh. And moreover, in time past, even when Saul was king, thou wast he that led us out and brought us in Israel. And the Lord thy God said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be ruler over my people Israel. Therefore came all the elders of Israel to the, king, uh, to the king, to Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel according to the word of the Lord by Samuel. And David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, which is Jabus. The reason it was called Jabus at this time was in those four 
uh, generations, the Jebusites had come to occupy that land. Uh, and so we find that here in verse number 4, where the Jebusites were the inhabitants of the land. And the inhabitants of Jabus said to David, Thou shalt not come hither. Nevertheless, David took, notice this phrase, the castle of Zion, which is the city of David. And David said, Whosoever smiteth the Jebusites first shall be chief and captain. So Joab, the son of uh, Zariah, uh, went first up and was chief. And David dwelt in the castle there, uh, therefore. They called it the city of David. And he built the city round about, even from Milo, uh, round about. And Joab repaired the rest of the city. So David waxed greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. This tower of Eder, this defensive tower, when the Jebusites came in, uh, they may have even expanded on it, I don't know, but they occupied this. And when David came in and conquered them, he called it the castle of Zion. And he lodged in this, this, this castle that was there, uh, that was built, this, this tower of Eder that had been expanded perhaps and even had living quarters down below. It seems to uh, have archaeologically at least that there were some uh, rooms and things that were in the bottom level that were added on later. And he lived there. This is where, even though David was from Bethlehem, it's not the reason why Bethlehem was called the city of David. The reason it was called the city of David was because David set up his residence, and this is the first time it's mentioned here in verse number 7. The Bible says, Then David dwelt in the castle, therefore they called it the city of David. And so when we think of Bethlehem being the city of David, it is the Bethlehem right outside of Jerusalem, overlooking the valley of Ephraim, uh, the the tower and the castle that is there, it's known as the Tower of Edar. It is called here the Castle of Zion uh, also. And so this, this tower is there. Uh, now let's turn to Micah chapter number 5, and we're going to see it called a third thing. Micah chapter number 5. Micah is towards the end of our, our New Testament. Micah chapter number 5. It's a very familiar passage, and oftentimes at Christmas and in Christmas uh, performances of churches and things that they do for Christmas programs, they will often quote this verse. Uh, Micah chapter number 5 and verse number 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephrathah. So we know which Bethlehem it is. It's the one that is in the valley of Ephrath. It is known as Bethlehem Ephrata in this passage. Though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Who is he speaking of here? He's speaking here of the Lord Jesus Christ. His goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. And so we find that this Bethlehem, Overlooking the valley of Ephrath is the place where the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be born. Now it gets really interesting. Back up one chapter. Micah chapter number 4. Micah chapter number 4. Verse number 8. Again, he's talking about this place where the Lord is going to be born. He's dealing with this area. Notice uh, what uh, he says here in verse number 8, and I'll show how it ties to Bethlehem. It says, And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. Now, I'm going to stop there for just a moment. Uh, Bethlehem, outside of Jerusalem, is known as the daughter of Zion. That's it's the name that many times people refer to it as the daughter of Zion. Not only down through history, but even to this day, many of the Jews refer to it as the daughter of Zion. And notice that it speaks here that the tower of the flock, which uh, he speaks very clearly here, is the stronghold of the daughter of Zion. So the tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee, unto what? The daughter of Zion? No, unto the tower of the flock. Unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. 
So we find that it's not just saying that he's coming to Bethlehem. According to this particular verse, he's saying that this child is going to come to the tower of the flock. This tower of Edar, as it was known in Genesis, later on it was known as the tower of Zion in David's time, and now is referred to as the tower of the flock. Now, there is some reasons why it is referred to as the tower of the flock. It is set at the top of the valley that is known as the shepherd's field. In the tower of the flock, they had, during the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, they had specially trained Levitical shepherds that would uh, care for and tend to the sacrificial lambs that were to be given in the temple as a sacrifice. When a ewe was getting ready to give birth, they would bring the ewe into the bottom floor, into the residential area uh, of the tower, this tower of the flock. And there in a sanitary, kosher, and clean environment, they would give birth to this lamb. Uh, Once the lamb was born and washed, the chief Levitical shepherd, the one that was over the, the, or the group there and was managing them, would inspect every single lamb that was born. If the lamb had a blemish, he was turned out and was put to general use, and the people around the area could buy them and use them for general uses. But if the lamb was without blemish, they did something that no other shepherds ever did. They would take the lamb and they would swaddle them and keep these clothes wrapped around them, these cloths. They would take them and there was a place for the ewe to feed and there were numbers of these hewn out. You can actually see pictures of them still. If you can get pictures of the ruins, they still have them there. And they would lay these lambs in these mangers that were used for these ewes to eat from during the time that they're recovering from the birth. They would put the, the, the hay in there, they would lay them in place, and they would watch them for a period of time to make certain that nothing happened to the lamb that would blemish them. They would do this for a period of time till the lamb was old enough to go out on its own and to uh, go out away from its mother and be part of the field out in the shepherd's field. And then at one year of age, they would take the lamb and sacrifice them in the temple. Another very interesting thing that would take place is when the lamb that was born and was found to be uh, worthy of sacrifice, he was without spot and without blemish, they would wrap him in those clothes. And then the chief shepherd would go to the top of the tower and he would light a torch, signifying that a lamb worthy of sacrifice had been born to let the whole world know. Now let's go back to Luke chapter 2 for a moment. Knowing these things, let's read the story again and look at a couple of things. Let's start in verse number 3. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David. Where is the city of David? Well, we know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that it was Bethlehem that overlooked Ephrata. Joseph went also, uh, went also up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea under the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary is his spouse wife being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and notice this, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them. Notice this word, in the end. There was only one. People knew where it was. They knew what it was. There wasn't room for them to have a child and to have the privacy and the cleanliness that was necessary. And so the Bible tells us in Micah chapter number 4 that the tower of the flock was the place where he was going to be born. So Joseph apparently takes her over because there was no room for them in the end 
to this tower of the flock. And there she births the Lord Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of mankind, what John refers to as the Lamb of God. He is wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's laid in the manger just as the sacrificial lambs were. They were in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field. Now, that's interesting because uh, there were only one group of shepherds that would abide in the field. Uh, Most shepherds would be in the fall, in the spring of the year, would watch their flocks. But during the the summertime and wintertime, the flocks were to roam without being cared for. There's only one group of shepherds that not only would abide in the field, and they would keep watch over their flocks. Notice the Bible says this, by night. General shepherds would put their sheep into a fold and go to sleep. But the Levitical shepherds had to watch them 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, to ensure that they did not become blemished. So these shepherds, uh, we understand when it says abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, these are details that if they were just general shepherds really didn't have to be there, but they're there because I think the Lord Jesus Christ wanted us to know that these were special shepherds. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. There's a lot to be said of verse 9. Maybe we'll deal with that next week. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Now, I want you to notice really carefully verse number 12. And this shall be a what? A sign unto you. Well, what's the sign that the angel gives the shepherds? How are they going to distinguish this baby from any other baby that could have been born perhaps on that night? There's a sign that is given. This shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe. What's the sign? You know why that was the sign? Because those shepherds understood and knew what the swaddling clothes were. It's what they used to wrap the sacrificial lambs that were worthy of sacrifice in. The angel specifically told them, this is how you're going to know. This is the sign. You'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Can I tell you this? Those shepherds, of all shepherds in Israel, knew exactly what this angel was talking about. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, goodwill, uh, peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And I think verse 16 also gives a, uh, an indication of some things here regarding this account. The Bible says, and they came with haste. They didn't go searching. They didn't go from end to end or house to house trying to find stables. There was no mention of an inn given to the shepherds. It was just simply said they were wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. They didn't go from house to house looking in all the mangers of all the stalls of people who had animals in their houses. They came with haste. Why? Because they knew right where to go. They knew exactly where to go. They came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. When they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. Our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, was not born in a dirty stable with all kinds of animals around him. He was born in a kosher place, a clean place, a sanitary place that was intended only for the lambs that were to be sacrificed for the atonement of men to be born. A lot of things took place that I think over the years we've missed. We've gotten 
pictures in our minds of the way Christmas was. We've been taught, we've been given visual aids, pictures, statues, manger scenes. But the truth is, our precious Savior was born as a lamb that was worthy of sacrifice for the redemption, the atonement of man's sin. John called Him the Lamb of God. When he was baptizing, he sees Jesus coming. He says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the earth, the world. God refers to Him as the Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. You say, why is that important for me to know? I'll tell you, if you're saved today, it causes us to rejoice and not just see that Christ was just another ordinary child, but He was the Son of God who humbled Himself, wrapped Himself in flesh, came in the form of a man, lived a perfect, sinless life without spot and without blemish, and offered Himself freely as the sacrifice for our sin. He loved us that much. That's an amazing love. Romans 5 tells us that He commended His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were unlovable, He loved us. He came to this earth and did all of these things, the beautiful, beautiful plan of redemption. All of these things that God had set up in the Old Testament for practices of, of sacrifice, for the atoning of man were simply shadows and pictures of the one and the true Lamb that was to come. And He did, a little over 2,000 years ago. He did so for our salvation, for your salvation and mine. And I love what the Bible says here in verse number 16, uh, verse number 17, I'm sorry. The Bible says, And when they had seen it, they did what? They made known abroad. The message is this today, having seen the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ, can we not do as the shepherds and make it known abroad? This is a wonderful time of year. It's probably not the time. We're fairly certain that he did not. He was not born in December. Probably sometime in, in late uh, summer or early fall, perhaps. But probably not in December. But it is the time we've set aside to recognize his birth. I would say this, at this time of year, of all times of the year, we have an open door of opportunity to share with others that need to hear the redemptive plan of God for man. That they can see their need of a Savior. That they can trust Him as their Savior. I want to challenge us and encourage us during this Christmas time to take every opportunity, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whether it's neighbors, to share the gospel story with them of the wonderful work that God did for us on Calvary. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. We pray that You'll bless it and use it. Lord, so many things of Scripture that if we're not careful, we gloss over or we have a, a misconceived idea about or a notion about. Father, I pray that You'd help us to have a true view and understanding that this was not just some common birth, but it was a perfect birth. It is a birth that met every aspect.